Good morning, Asbury Theological. Thank you. It is such a joy to be here. I can't even hardly contain myself. I look out across this room and I see people that I love and people who have mentored me and people who have changed and refined me and folks who have walked with me through very dark places and I give thanks for you. I also give thanks for the faces that I don't yet know because knowing who you are and how you're being trained, you give me hope. Hope for a kingdom that will be built and hope for a heaven we have yet to share together. Ah, it's a good thing when the people of God get to be in one place all together. Amen? Yes, I have a film clip for you. Are you ready? Here it comes. Do you know the story? You do. I know you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hope. <laughs> Thank you very much. There is a truth in this clip. There is a truth that's become a proverb. Hope. It is the only thing stronger than fear. I know that you cannot exist in popular culture in America these days and not know that who you're looking at is President Snow. Yes, the embodiment of the word ruthless. His one desire is complete and unchallenged control over the 12 districts of Panem. Yes? There are two objectives to his Hunger Games that have become a series. And by the way, the next movie is coming out in two weeks. Just thought I'd let you know. One, as in the ancient Roman Empire, allusions to which abound in the film, these games keep the masses entertained and therefore compliant. But two, in a sick and twisted and wholly broken fashion, via the one tribute who's allowed to survive, the games keep a form of hope alive in an exploited and starving world. How interesting is it that this villain of all villains would have realized this truth, that hope is the most powerful force on this planet. And he's determined that it's stronger than fear, and he has determined that he's going to use it. Now, not too much of a spoiler, but for all of those of you who have followed the books and the films, I'm grateful to say that hope turns out to be a more potent force than this villain can actually handle. So in the minutes that I have with you this morning, I want to talk to you about hope. I want to talk to you about hope that is more powerful than fear, hope that is more potent than despair, hope that is the inheritance of we, the Christian community, hope that offers a road from nowhere to somewhere if there's someone who'll walk it with you. Now, you may be wondering how I got interested in this topic. Besides living in a broken and fallen world, hey, we're all interested in hope. Um, there was a catalyst last spring. I was teaching the book of Isaiah, which is my want, and I was teaching it to 30 really fabulous undergrads. Okay, not all of them were fabulous all of the time, but that would be another story. And as Wheaton College, where I now uh, reside, is a liberal arts institution, I challenged my undergrads to do their final exegesis projects in a transdisciplinary fashion. In other words, I forced the Bible and theology majors to work with the psych and economic majors 
and come up with an interpretive project of the book of Isaiah that was actually informed by somebody else's discipline. What a concept, biblical studies actually interacting with other disciplines. Don't, don't you hate it when profs make you do stuff like that? So it turns out that in that class, I had three psych majors. You know, our future researchers and therapists, many of which are gathering their tutelage here under the auspices of Dr. Tati Holman. Um, you know, those folks who are gonna actually guide us through the miseries of, of life as it happens. Well, to my great surprise, each one of those psych majors in my class found the same thing in the book of Isaiah. And what they found was hope. Hope spoken in passionate and compelling terms by our prophet Isaiah to a broken and despairing people, Israel, a populace whose own sin had finally caught up with them and left them with nothing. And as I listened to my students interact with their expertise in psychology and their growing expertise in Isaiah, I was captured. Because being a Bible and theology kind of gal, I had no idea that hope could actually be quantified. I didn't know it, Toddy. I didn't know that hope is an actual psychological category and that hope theory is apparently one of the hottest topics in the business right now. Nor did I have any idea that there were mechanisms for creating hope or that hope could be learned, nor, of course, did I know that the words of God through Isaiah could be identified or analyzed as one of those mechanisms spoken to offer to a broken and despairing people a road back from despair into a future of not just changed circumstances, but a changed life. So what is hope? Well, as I learned from my students and counseling and psych majors out here, forgive my amateur attempts, but according to C.R. Snyder, who is apparently the hope guru of this current generation, hope is the perceived capability to imagine and pursue pathways to goals that get a person out of where they are into a place they wanna be. Moreover, it's the ability to motivate yourself to actually use those pathways. So hope involves agency, the motivation or ability to move forward, and it involves pathways, an identified avenue by which to move forward. Now, as you can hear in this definition, according to Snyder, hope ultimately starts with me. You can hear it, can't you? It requires me to find a path forward, pathways, and it requires me to get moving on that path, agency which most of the time a healthy adult can do and design a road into the future. But here's the rub, or the two rubs. What about when we're not dealing with a healthy adult? What about when we're instead dealing with an exhausted or injured adult who's come to the end of their proverbial rope? Those who, due to the injuries of the past and the agonies of their present, find themselves ready to throw in the towel. You know, the, the type of anxiety that won't let you sleep or eat? The type of despair that has you seriously pondering the best avenue by which to relieve the world of your presence? The type of injustice that has just flat out broken you and you simply don't have it in you to get up one more time. How does this person find the agency and the pathway to move forward? Well, and on the other side of this equation, what about those crazy people 
who are staring into the stark realities of impossible, and yet they continue to hope. You know, the HIV-positive widow living in a refugee camp in South Sudan with four children depending on her, who has absolutely no reasonable pathway into a better future? Well, according to E.M. Tong, who I have learned is the other hope guru of this generation, he says that under these conditions, Snyder's model doesn't work. When personal influence has lost all relevance, those extremely traumatic situations in which people are aware that what is so deeply desired is beyond reach, when neither their talents nor their resources can get them there, when hope would seemingly be exhausted, but it remains. What do you do with those people? Well, I'm no hope guru, but I can tell you that the conditions that Tong is describing are exactly the conditions that characterized the prophet Isaiah's audience when he preached Isaiah chapter 43. We're right there. You might want to get your Bibles out because you're going to need them. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. Israel has been a nation since Moses came down off of Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenants in his hands. The day that God said, will you? And Israel said, yes. The promise was that God would give this homeless people the land of Israel as a land grant. And if Israel would keep God's covenant, they would keep the land. He would give them houses that they had not built, vineyards that they had not planted, olive groves that they had not tended. And as it takes 20 years for an olive yard to begin to bear fruit, okay, this is kind of a big deal. As there are cisterns in the ancient world that are as big as this chapel, okay, that's kind of a big deal. From the perspective of a nomadic people whose most recent memory was generations of slavery, followed by a generation of homelessness, Yahweh had given these people paradise. And most importantly, he had blessed them by giving them a new identity, a new name, and that name was his own. But he also promised that if they broke this covenant, they would be driven from this land, and thereby all the economic stability and military protection that he had promised and offered them would be removed if they failed to maintain this covenant relationship with Yahweh. The demands were minimal, but they were not negotiable. Well, by the year 586 BC, which is when we pick up this story, Israel has broken every promise they've ever made. Often compared to a philandering spouse, they've proven beyond any question that they are completely faithless. And as our prophet catalogs line upon line throughout his book, this covenant people had over and over again chosen other gods over the one that saved them. They had chosen wealth over justice, political influence over integrity, religiosity over real piety, themselves over anyone else, the honor of men over the honor of God. God is left in the position of stating in the first chapter of this enormous book, how can I discipline you any further? Where can you add to your rebellion? What else can I do? So in 586 BC, which you all know from your intro to Old Testament classes, come on now, 586 BC, after years of warnings and correction and consequences and myriads of second chances, the God of Israel at last fulfilled his covenant curse. And he sent his servant, Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king of Babylon, to wipe out his covenant people. 
the villages of Israel are burned, the walls of Jerusalem are toppled, the temple of Yahweh is pulled down stone by stone, there's blood running in the streets, there's bodies piled in the alleys, and anyone who survives this trauma is tied one to the next and dragged 1,200 miles off into exile. You need to think about the flood of refugees in the South Sudan when you think of your heroes heading off into the exile. You need to think about the Nazi death marches of 44 and 45. You need to think about District 12. This is what Israel looks like. And in this devastation, the citizens lost everything. Certainly their homes and their wealth, but also their families, their friends, their stature in society. Wealthy, influential, old money Israelites are tied one to the next, dragged out of Judah with literally only the clothes on their back. 1,200 miles into a place they have never seen and never known. A broken people. This is the enactment of the covenant curse first promised at Sinai. It took Israel more than 500 years to get there. It took Yahweh a bit more time to finally pull the trigger. And the worst part, everyone in that caravan of despair, everyone knew that what was happening to them was their own stupid fault. They knew they had been faithless. They knew they had ignored the cry of the widow and the orphan. They had worshipped other gods. They had cheated and the relationship had collapsed. They had stolen and wound up with the business disintegrating. They knew they did not deserve mercy or restoration or yet another chance. If there was ever a people whose lives were gripped by the iron bars of despair, this was them. When they looked at their current situation, stripped of their possessions, relationships, careers, and tried to imagine a pathway into the future, nothing. When they tried to stir up the agency to motivate themselves to move forward toward anything, numb. And they were completely clear that their hopeless situation was that of their own doing. It's into this reality that our prophet speaks, and he offers Israel the impossible. Yahweh declares, I've forgiven, and I'm going to bring them home. So here we are in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus says Yahweh, your creator, Barah, O Jacob, and your designer, Yetzar, O Israel, do not fear, because I have redeemed you. I've called you by my name, and you are mine. Even in their most utter place of wretchedness, even when every friend they've ever had is like, I think I'll sit at the other cafeteria table today, Yahweh reclaims this sad excuse of a people for his own. He declares in the public square, I will redeem, and I will cover their story with my own. When you cross the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. Have you heard about waters overflowing people before? When you go into the midst of the fire, you'll not be burned. I will not let the flame kindle upon you. Now, there is absolutely no promise here that they're going to bypass the waters and the flame, and there's no promise here that it's going to be easy. But the promise is that he would not allow them to be overwhelmed. Hear me, O people of God. Rather, as Paul preaches, this suffering will have its desired effects. It will produce perseverance, proven character, and hope. Why? 
Because I, Yahweh, am your God, the Holy One of Israel, your deliverer. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba instead of you, because you're precious in my eyes. You're honored, and I love you, and I will give a person in your place and peoples, la'umim, in exchange for your life. Yes, Israel was guilty. There's no question about that. You can get over that. A ransom will have to be paid. But Yahweh declares that he will buy a reprieve on behalf by means of giving another in their place. Sound familiar? Why? Because to me, you're precious. Now, for those of you who know me, you know I'm a mom. And I became a mom right here in Wilmore. In fact, one of my more significant claims to fame, are you ready? Is that I was the first faculty member in the history of Asbury Theological Seminary to ever give birth. Yes? Thank you. Thank you. I was also the one who served as the catalyst to a stunned and fearful administration to have to compose the first ever maternity leave policy for faculty. <laughs> yes, you can thank me later. Okay, so as a mom, I ask the parents among us, have you ever stood with your child in the presence of another parent or a teacher or a principal or a coach or God forbid, a police officer or a probation officer and everyone standing in that circle knows that your child is totally screwed up. They know it, you know it, your kid knows it. And you see the shame in your child's eyes. And you're embarrassed. But still, you feel that primal thing come up inside of you. And that primal thing is that one's mine. <laughs> I know what he's done. I, I care about what he's done, but that one's mine. And you are going to have to move heaven and earth to pry me out of this room. This is the heart of a parent. You are precious in my sight. And so here it is. Do not fear. Why? Because I'm with you. So many things when I hear this line. In my darkest days, when hope had completely evaporated, when I would have given anything to have someone with authority step up and defend me, for someone with actual power over my situation to step into my agony and walk the dark road with me, have you ever been there? I think of my kids. I think of the immeasurable privilege it is to me that every time we cross the street, even at 13, my oldest reaches for my hand. Every time. I, as a mom, have the privilege of walking my kids into the dentist, into the doctor's office for x-rays, kindergarten shots, meeting the new fourth grade teacher who, by the grapevine, eats fourth graders alive, <laughs> simply by reassuring my children, I will go with you. And they go. And then I think of my God and all the times that he has whispered this truth into my heart. Guys, all of redemption's story at its core is the story of a God who pays the highest of prices simply be able to offer you and I that reassurance. I am with you. And neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor probation officers, nor fourth grade teachers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, or heights, or depths, can separate you from the love I have for you. And so Yahweh offers Israel his promise. I'm going with you. I will lead you out of that dark place. And whatever we face, girl, we're facing it together. From the east, I will bring your offspring. From the west, 
I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring out my sons from a distance, my daughters from the edges of the earth, the ones called by name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have fashioned, even whom I have made. We need to remember that the people of the nation of Israel had first experienced exile as early as the Syro-Ephraimite Wars in 734. In 722, when the northern kingdom fell. Again, in 586, when the southern kingdom fell. And in betwixt and in between, there were at least three other deportations that displaced these people and their children from every place they could call home, to the four corners of the planet. But Yahweh says, I will bring you back, your sons and your daughters, your siblings, your parents, all the ones who have gotten lost in the midst of this mess I will find them and I will bring them home. How will I find them and how will I bring them home? Well, according to verses 14 and 17, the first thing he's going to do, he's going to march on Babylon. you got to love a God who periodically says, I'm done talking now. <laughs> and he picks up a bat and he busts the bad guys. Okay, this is a good thing. I will bring them down as fugitives. I, Yahweh, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. I will make a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. The one who brings out the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty men, they lay there never to rise again, extinguished like a wick. In other words, this God who is asking Israel to trust them, that he can and will lead them out of that dark place, has stood in the gap for them once before. He's defeated Egypt and he's freed his people. Babylon small potatoes. And after he defeats Babylon, well, according to 18 through 21, Yahweh is making a way where there was no way. Hear me on this. Yahweh is building a highway. This is what my psych majors focused in on. This is what they saw for the first time, and they made me see for the first time. He's building a highway where there was no highway before. He's leveling the mountains, raising up the valleys, throwing open the gates to build a pathway for his people to come home. In other words, God is creating hope for a people who cannot do it for themselves. Behold, do not remember the former things. Don't ponder the things of the past. At this moment, men and women of God, at this moment, I'm doing a new thing. Now it will spring forth. Will you not see it? I will place a highway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, in order to give my chosen people drink, the people who I have designed for myself. They will recount my praise. They will tell the story, and they will tell it well of a God who seeks and saves the lost, of a God who searches and finds those who have been lost, and he brings them home. And Yahweh was good for his word. Because in 539 BC, you're now ready for that timeline quiz, Babylon was defeated out of the blue by the Persian Empire. And completely out of the blue, the conquering Persians told all the captives of Babylon, tens of thousands, you can go home now. And Psalm 126 says that the captives of Israel were like those who dreamed. And to those who dared to believe, they went home. Hope a road from nowhere to somewhere if there's someone who's willing to walk it with you. So now you should be asking as great exegetes of the word, how in the world did these people who had been dragged away as prisoners 70 years before, who had learned to wear the name failure, 
outsider, exile, loser, addict, adulterer, ever find the courage to believe in a better future? How do they find the agency to leave the comfort of their familiar but predictable misery and reach for something else? Guys, there are two answers to that question. And you need to know them for yourselves, and you need to know them for the people that God has asked you to serve. The first answer is that they found that courage because of the character of the one who called them. Yahweh is not a man that he should lie. Yahweh has earned his reputation. The parting of the Red Sea was no fluke. This is the God who calls Israel from the darkest of places to the scariest of highways to the ultimate destination. And these people, answer two, found courage based on a bigger story that surrounded them. When I had the privilege of teaching here, I used to say to my students all the time, do not fritter your time in the pulpit away with fun anecdotes about your Aunt Matilda or anybody else. You tell the story, and you tell it well. Because at 3 a.m. in the ICU, it is not your motivational speaking or your charm or your good hair that's going to get anyone through the dark night of the soul. It's the story. They found that courage based on a bigger story that surrounded them, and they wrapped themselves in that story, and they believed that story, and they had the courage to take that step. And so impossibly, miraculously, completely unprecedented in history, Israel went home. And more miraculously, they managed to rebuild their lives in the war-torn, burned-out, abandoned, gone-wild, and flat-out scary environs of the ruins of Jerusalem. These refugees who had been staring into the stark realities of impossible, who, to quote Tong, personal influence had lost all relevance, who had no resources to change their situation or the system that held them, grabbed a hold of hope in the words of Isaiah, and they believed. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. I'm doing something new. Right now, right here, will you not see it? I can assure you that these people were scared they were scared to leave what they knew for what they had only heard about. They were intimidated by a long and dangerous road. They were more than a little tempted to despair that their past would forever define their futures. Can you hear that? And that old <laughs> age and corruption would always outwit youth and talent. They were tempted to despair. But based on the character of the God who called them and on the story that was bigger than they were, they got up and they tried again. And these exiles found the agency to become the remnant that ushered in the age of Jesus the Christ. So, where do you find yourselves this morning? Have having spelt spent the bulk of my life hanging out with graduate students and seminarians. I am more than a little aware that most of you are probably, currently, juggling way more balls than you can actually handle. I know that you are dealing with a list of anxieties that is longer than you can probably even pull back right at this moment. There are the studies, the jobs, the spouse, the children, the bishop, 
the finances, the applications, the lease, the car, the marriage, and the dream. That awkward liminal space between what you believe you're called to be and what you actually are. And all woefully compounded by your personal, detailed inventory of your own inadequacies and limitations, which, by the way, always seem a lot bigger when you're exhausted and over-caffeinated. So, I want to leave you with something this morning. I want to tell you something this morning. As a Hope veteran myself, I want you to hear something this morning. Your God knows exactly who you are. He knows every splendid and sordid detail of your past. And he called you anyway. <laughs> he also knows exactly what you're capable of. He knows the exact line where your limitations begin and you crumble. He knows the exact stimulus that will pull you from animated activity to complete and utter panic zone. He knows because he designed you. And here's the biggest surprise of all. He's not standing by with a clipboard waiting to check off the box when you finally give up and go down. Rather, this God is standing on the road into your future. And he's saying to each and every one of us, come on, we can do this. I know the way. Get up. Get going. I'm right I want you to know that your God is a God who understands the injuries and the exhaustion that produce despair. But he is also a God who specializes in prescribing hope. Because you see, your God doesn't simply see your future. Your God is actually seeing you from your future. He calls you to forget the former things and grab onto the new thing that he is creating right here, right now, and get rolling. Notice that at no point does he say it's going to be easy but he says it can be done. Hope, based on the character of a God who has proven himself over and over. Hope, based on a story that is bigger than we are. Hope, that's based on a promise that cannot fail. That's what gave the exiles the agency to take the first step on the pathway that the Almighty had built for them. This is the same hope that brought the women to the empty tomb that morning, and they found a resurrection. What if they hadn't come? This is the same hope that lowered the lame man through the roof and he found healing. What if they hadn't bothered to try? Dear ones, hear me this morning. Wrap yourself in a story that is bigger than you are. Choose hope. It's stronger than fear. It's stronger than fear. We're going to sing hymn number 154. Stand with me. <laughs>